Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, follow with me as I read. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can know you through your word. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray now that my words would be your words and that you would use those words to convict, encourage, and strengthen your people for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. There are two questions which every one of us must answer. And those questions are really just one question. When we answer that question, it is incumbent upon us to remind ourselves of that answer continually. And that question is this. Why am I here? See, uh, too often people go through life continually asking and answering the what and how questions concerning their lives. And we rarely pause to consider the deeper why questions. We ask, uh, what, do, what do I want to do with my life? Or what would other think, others think is best for my life? Uh, if we're young, what career should I choose? Or what type of person should I marry? As we, as we get older, we ask, what house or community should I live in? Uh, what do I want to do with my time, my day, my weekend, the rest of my life? What, what should I do with my money and my resources, my, my talents? And we, we tend to continually ask those what questions as we go through life, uh, those, those what questions that have to do with the details of our lives. And, and then we ask all of those appropriate how questions to make the answers to the what questions become a reality. Once we determine what we want to do, we ask how can I make that a reality? But 
I want you to consider the question, why? Why are you here? And as I said before, there's two perspectives to that. First is that general um, sense, such as why do I exist? Or, or what's the meaning or purpose of life in my existence? Uh, that's a, it's interesting because that, that's a question that uh, may, many people in our world and in our culture say is unanswerable. Like, what's the meaning of life? Well, well somebody knows. The truth of the matter, we can know through the word of God what the meaning of life is, and it's incumbent upon us to know that meaning, to answer that question. But then there's a second part of that question, why am I here? And that's a specific sense, such as, why am I here in this particular time and place? And sometimes we, we ask that question um, when we start to um, question why are we doing the things we're doing, and we ask, why, why do I live here? Why do, why do I have this job? Why, do I, why am I married to this person or have this family or um, am part of this larger family? Um, and we look back on, we're forced to look back on the providence of God in our lives. But I really want you to consider why are you here in this church? Why are you in a church? why are you here on earth? And, and, and I say that because in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is essentially reminding the Corinthians of that question, why? And, and the only sufficient answer to that question is found in the gospel. You see, throughout the first 14 chapters of this letter, Paul is confronting and correcting the various wrong beliefs and practices, and, and even the heinous sins within the Corinthian church, which is the main purpose for why he's writing the letter. And, and most of you, if you're familiar with the letter to the Corinthians, you, you know that. You, you know how messed up the Corinthian church was. But then he makes a shift in his address here in chapter 15 when he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. And then he goes on to explain the importance of the gospel throughout chapter 15 with particular emphasis on the atonement and later on on the resurrection. And there's, there's good reason for that. Because the gospel and particularly the atonement and the resurrection of Christ, answers that question. Why am I here? But not only does it answer the question, why am I here in the general sense? Um, we're all created in the image of God, and we're created for specific purposes to be worshipers of God. But... As it says in Romans chapter 1, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So all are fallen in Adam, all have sinned, but all are made alive in Christ. So the gospel answers that bigger question. But it also answers the question for the Corinthians why they're in the mess they're in why they ought not to be in the mess they're in, and how they can rectify it. 
And in, in, in this passage particularly, we see three themes concerning the gospel, or rather three aspects of the gospel which answers that question. First, the priority of the gospel, the proofs of the gospel, and the power of the gospel. First, the priority of the gospel, verses 1 to 3. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures." Paul begins this chapter by saying, now I would remind you, which means two things. First and foremost, that the Corinthians have forgotten the gospel. And by looking at their behaviors in the previous chapters, there's good reason to believe that. Second is that one of the priorities of the gospel is the priority to remember it. Over and above any other message, concept, idea, or principle in life, we are to remember the gospel as believers. Because, you know, there's, there's many things which are profitable to learn and remember concerning God, the scriptures, and the Christian life. We have tons of resources in our day and age for Christian living and books and podcasts and sermons. But there's one thing you ought to never forget and should even strive to grow in a greater understanding of, and that is the gospel. Near the end of his life, a Puritan pastor, John Newton, he's the author of Amazing Grace, and if you know the story of his life, it's, it's really encouraging and edifying, and if you don't know the story of his life, you should go find out. Um, many great biographies about him. But towards the end of his life, he struggled to remember things as his memory was declining, uh, and he would often find himself at a loss of words in the pulpit. And during those times, he would say this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. He said, I, I, I remember the gospel. That I am a sinner and Christ is a great Savior. The most important thing to remember, he remembered. And in other words, as you know, many of you probably had school teachers or professors who have said this. If you remember nothing else, remember this. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. There's another pastor and author named Milton Vincent. He wrote a book called The Gospel Primer. And he talks in that book about the, the benefits in, in, of the gospel, not only to save, but for our Christian life. And he writes this. He said, God did not give us his gospel just so we could embrace it and be converted. Actually, he offers it to us every day as a gift that keeps on giving to us everything we need for life and godliness. 
The wise believer learns this truth early and becomes proficient in extracting available benefits from the gospel each day. We extract these benefits by being absorbed in the gospel, speaking it to ourselves when necessary, and by daring to reckon it true in all we do. Essentially what he's saying is that the gospel is not merely an elementary formula by which we are saved, but we are to live in light of its truths every day. Which is why Paul, or which is what Paul means by this phrase, in which you stand, in verse 1. He's saying, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand. And this is what he alludes to later in chapter 16 when he says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. When he says stand firm in the faith, he means stand firm in the gospel and all of its truths. Just as John Newton said, I remember these two things, that I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. So the priority of the gospel begins with the priority to receive that message by faith and as we are converted we stand in the faith by remembering it above all other messages all other uh, ideologies all other principles and concepts for our lives we remember the gospel and then there's the priority to proclaim that message, to proclaim that gospel. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. And he says that in chapter 15, but throughout most of this letter, he teaches them many profitable things, many good things, many important things. And you can see that as you skim through this book. Uh, In the first few chapters, he writes to them about the divisions and strife in the church and and the priority of unity in the church, unity amongst believers, which is important, but it's not of first importance. In chapters 5 and 6, he addresses sin in the church, grievous sin, and and the importance of holiness and separation, uh, uh, church discipline, But as important as those subjects are, they are not of first importance. In in chapter 7, Paul teaches them principles of marriage and singleness, which is also an important subject in the church and in Christian life. Uh, Marriage is a big part of life and, and, and even singleness, if we are called to it. But those principles about marriage and singleness are not of the greatest importance. In chapters 8 and 9, he writes to them concerning the exercise of Christian liberties and the freedom to forsake those liberties for the sake of gospel ministry, which is an important topic in church life and how we relate to one another, but that's still not of first importance. In chapters 11 to 14, he writes to them about their gatherings, about their worship services, about the exercise of their spiritual gifts and and the motivations behind those 
gifts and how they exercise them, whether or not those motivations are right or wrong. And all of that, all of those principles concerning our worship service and church life, that's very important. That's what we do. That's our methodology, our philosophy of ministry. But even that is not of first importance. Because here in chapter 15, particularly verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And here's the thing. Because there's many important principles and practices in the Christian life in the ministries of the church, which, which should be taught. They, they, they absolutely should be taught and applied. But oftentimes, believers and churches can emphasize the good at the expense of the great. There, there's many good things that the church can do and is commanded to do. But there's only one thing that the church of Jesus Christ can do that no other organization on earth can do. And it's the reason why the church exists. And that is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every one of you is here because of the gospel. Because at one point in your life, you heard the gospel. And you believed. And you were converted. And you were added to the church the living body of Christ. And if there's anyone here who is not a true believer, which statistically speaking, there's probably some, God has drawn you here this morning so that you would hear the gospel, repent from your sins, and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That is why you are here. You are all here because of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a main thing in the church. And if the church makes the applications and fruit of the gospel and conversion the main thing, then we put the cart before the horse. The, the world, American society, pop culture, they will love us for faithful Christian living, which doesn't faithfully and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will love us for our morality, for our good deeds, for our nice marriages, for our works, for our service to the community. But once we say that Jesus is Lord, and you must repent and believe and be saved, that's when the opposition comes. That's when the persecution comes. You know, you, you can go to most if not any liberal apostate church, cult, or false religion in the world, and you can find kind, loving, and hospitable people. Religious organizations which are unified and orderly, which contain couples with good marriages and people who are nice and moral, and who will all suffer eternal condemnation in the flames of hell unless they repent and believe the gospel. Faithful Christian living, personal holiness, and orderly worship is to flow out of faithful gospel proclamation and to adorn and give evidence 
of the truth and power of the gospel, which is why Paul is reminding the Corinthians here of the gospel. Because his most important thing in life, in Christianity, and in the church, and that is why there's a priority to receive the gospel, to remember the gospel, and to proclaim the gospel. There's no other message, no other piece of news that has the same level of importance. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter said in, in Acts, there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no un, other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Paul in 1 Timothy said, there, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That is why we exist. That is why we are here. Because there's only one hope for mankind. There's only one hope for sinners. There's only one God. There's only one way to be redeemed. There, there's no such thing as a plurality of truths. Or there's many ways to heaven. That, that's a lie. And we're not a social club. Though we are called to be moral, we are called to be loving, we are called to be kind, we are called to be generous. But we're different than any other organization on earth because we have the truth by which sinners can be saved, and that is the gospel. But oftentimes, sad to say, we don't prioritize the gospel in our lives. And primarily because deep down, we all know that one of the main implications of believing this wonderful truth, this, this gospel that saves, one of the main impl implications is that we would then go and proclaim that gospel to others. And we all know that in proclaiming the gospel to others, there will be opposition, there will be rejection, and potentially persecution. Because the, the great news of the gospel starts with the bad news. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And everyone deserves hell. Every single one of us. And sinners don't like to hear that. Which is why Paul not only proclaims the priority of the gospel to the Corinthians... But then he proclaims the proofs of the gospel. Verses 3 to 10. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
it's not only that the gospel has priority, which he proclaims and reminds the Corinthians of, but there's irrefutable tr proofs of the gospel. And, and when we come to faith, we, we, we believe the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we, our, our, our faith doesn't so much rest on evidence, though there is evidence. It rests on the power of the Holy Spirit to convert us and to actually give us the faith to believe, to regenerate us, to cause us to be born again. And then we look to the scriptures and we see the truth of the gospel. But God gives us these proofs through primarily the scripture, but also in the world. And the Old Testament attests that Christ would die for our sins. We, we can see this theme of, of substitutionary atonement in the scriptures as far back as Genesis 3 where we see that the offspring of the woman shall bruise the head of Satan, and he shall bruise his heel. And, and, and that it is the Lord himself who covers the shame of Adam and Eve with the skins of the animal. That there was a sacrifice. The, the theologians and pastors call that the, the proto-euangelion, meaning the first gospel. And, and then... In Genesis 22, we see an even clearer picture in the near sacrifice of Isaac at the hands of Abraham. That foreshadowing of God killing his own son for us. And Paul comments on this in Romans chapter 4 when he says, That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. See, um, justification by faith goes as far back as Abraham. It didn't start with Paul. We're, we're, we've always been saved by faith. Abraham was saved by faith. Paul goes on, he says, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Even Jesus said to the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, he said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And Abraham is one of the first believers. There's believers before him, but they were believers, not because of anything they did, but because of what God did in them to cause them to be born again and to believe. David prophesies concerning the death of Christ in Psalm 22. Uh, several passages throughout the Old Testament attest that Christ would be buried and rise again on the third day. Isaiah 53, the main one. The life, the miracles, the death of Jesus Christ fulfills over 300 Old Testament prophecies. The, the Old Testament scriptures are, are full of proofs of the gospel. So we have the proof of the scriptures. But Paul also shows the proof of eyewitnesses. He says in verses 5 to 8 that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You know, in, in Leviticus, in the Old Testament law, it says that every charge shall be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And there was, in, in Old Testament law, and not even in um, the Jewish Old Testament law alone, but in ancient Near Eastern law, eyewitnesses, and the more you had, the better, established the proof of a matter. And Jesus was seen by the apostles. He was seen by over 500 disciples at once. And he was seen by the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. This eyewitness testimony that confirms what the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, um, attest to. That Jesus was the Messiah. That he would suffer, die, be buried, and rise again to save us from our sins. And, and this, this sense of evidence, it, it's not the most important thing to confirm our faith, but it is, is pretty important. It, it reminds me of um, the trip I, I, I had to go to Israel um, during the last, um, at the end of my seminary, um, the very last semester, I, I had the privilege of my seminary go, does um, trips to Israel, uh, study trips with, uh, you can take it for credit and there's a professor that goes along with sometimes two professors who have been there 40, 50 times and, and know so much about it. They, you can go down the street and they're like, oh yeah, and down this corner there's this guy in this, this store and, and he has good, good shawarmas. His name is Omar and, and I know his brother. It's, they, they know so much about the land and, and I had the privilege of going on this trip. And, and even before the trip, I had studied, I mean, not just through seminary, but I took a class of of the geography of Israel and, and to learn all the the sites and the cities and and all the the roads and and all the stories and how they match up with the geography of Israel and, and it was it was great it was great because when I went there I had already believed I, I wasn't doubting any of that information I believed all of it I had my faith was sure but when I went there I I saw so much evidence in Israel for the Bible, for the nation of Israel, for Christianity, that towards the end of that trip, I didn't even finish the trip, um, before this conviction came upon me, it was probably the last week, and I'm like, there's so much, I'm, I'm done, I'm done, like, like, my mind is full, I've seen so much, and there's, there's only one thing left to do. And that's to go and proclaim this gospel to others. Because the truth is overwhelming. It's, it's overwhelming. It's irrefutable. It, it's everywhere. Over there. And, and it's everywhere in the scriptures. So I, I, We have the proofs for the gospel in the... Old Testament scriptures, the, the, the words that uh, assert Jesus' life and death and his resurrection. We have the proofs of eyewitnesses that saw him, that even saw his crucifixion, that were with him during his ministry and saw him his resurrection. 
And then we have the proofs of transformation. Verses 9 and 10. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, speaking of the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Oftentimes, and you know, we shared our testimonies earlier, and oftentimes you see this in testimonies that I was headed one way, God came into my life, and now I'm headed the other way. And some testimonies more than others is true for all of us. But we see it clear as day in the testimony of the Apostle Paul. This religious, self-righteous Jew who he thought he was going the right way. He thought he was on fire for God. He was doing exactly what God had told him to do and shame on everybody else who is not doing it his way. Until the risen Jesus Christ came and showed him, actually, Paul, you're doing it the wrong way. You're doing it the wrong way, and not only are you doing it the wrong way, but you don't understand the scriptures which you claim to be an expert in. And then he turned him around, and he went the other way, full steam ahead and we see that proof of transformation that is irrefutable even the people of his day is like what happened to this guy even the apostles they 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 were scared to accept him in because no way this guy was he was persecuting believers he was destroying the church and now you're saying he's preaching the gospel you know, one of the main implications of the gospel is that of transformation and redemption. As someone once said, and has said many times over and over again, show me your redeemed life and I will believe that there is a redeemer. And there ought to be transformation in the lives of every believer that gives evidence to the proof of the gospel. And it's not just the Apostle Paul's transformation, but even in the Corinthians, as messed up as they were, you know, my, probably, I I love this verse right here in in Corinthians chapter 15, and particularly verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. I love that verse. But probably the, my favorite verse in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is in the beginning, in Paul's salutation, where he says in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. As messed up as the Corinthian church was in their division, in their strife, in their sin, he calls them saints. He calls them saints. And especially for me with the Roman Catholic background and, and the, 
just how they perverted the name of saint and the concept of being a saint. That verse is my favorite because they're not called saints for what they did or what they would do or what they could do. They're called saints because of what Jesus Christ did. And that word saint, it literally means holy one, the holy. Um, and, and the root of holy is not just perfection, but it's being set apart. It's being called out. Even the word for church, ekklesia, in Greek means called out, called out once. And we are called out of the world. We're taken out of the world because we're all fallen in sin, but we're taken out of the world, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, all by the grace of God. And so, as wretched, as foolish, as sinful as you may be, if you're in Jesus, if you're born again, you are a saint. And even if you stumble and fall, but you are born again, you are still a saint. And that title will never go away because it came from Christ because he was the one that called you to be born again. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul alludes on this even more. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, when he's addressing the sin in the church. And he, he, you can go there and read, read along. He, he's addressing the sin in the church, this heinous sin, this immorality. And then he gets to um, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11, and he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the best part. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. And here we see the extremes of the gospel that God is perfectly holy and he won't turn a blind eye to sin he will judge every single sin at the deed the word the thought the attitude he'll bring it all into judgment and that's a scary thought it's a true thought but the other extreme is that God saves the worst of sinners and he saves us from those sins. So if we are in Christ, it can be said of you, such were some of you. Though we may stumble, we don't continue in that sin. He brought us out of it. And he goes on, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. So we see in this passage, first, the priority of the gospel in verses 1 to 3, three. then the 
proofs of the gospel, verses 3 to 10, but throughout the whole passage, there's one thing that is clear, and that is the power of the gospel. This is the only message, and you think about this, words, words, a message that has the the power to redeem a human being, to save us from, from hell, to save us from eternal damnation. And this is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, he says to them, he says, Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. And this is why I say this is the main thing in the church and in the Christian life. Because if we have been saved by the gospel, if we've been delivered from our sins, delivered from hell, and and, and given adoption as sons in Christ Jesus, the hope of heaven, then woe to us if we do not proclaim this gospel to others. Woe to us. That, That... it's a travesty for any believer to go through their life and never once tell somebody else about this gospel. As hard as it may be, you know, as much as the opposition may bring, or the rejection, or the persecution, we have to tell somebody. We, we can't keep this to ourselves. Necessity is laid upon us. Woe to us if we do not preach the gospel. There's so so many times in my life, in my Christian life, where I did not want to preach the gospel. I did not want to share the gospel. And I'm sure you've all had similar experiences. But the thing I needed to do in that moment is proclaim the gospel and, and though oftentimes I fumble and it, 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 it's, I, I can never look back and say, man, I really hit it out of the park that time. That person's definitely going to be saved. No, no, I, I, I can, every time I can look back and see where I failed and I fumbled. But we got to say something. We got to say something. People are perishing. My ministry right now, past couple years I've been serving as a hospice chaplain which is hard Um, it has its highs and lows and there's often times where I come to someone and sad to say most of them they couldn't even receive the gospel if I preached it to them because they're in such a state with their mind has deteriorated whether it's Alzheimer's dementia or the medication or they're not even in a state to receive the gospel. But in those times where there is an unbeliever and they still have their mind, and I'm there, and you can see there is no hope. All their hope of, you know, the cancer 
um, going into remission or, or, or their heart doing better or um, it's all gone and, and, and you can see it maybe they're still holding out hope for something else but the doctors did all they could the nurses have already done all they could everybody has done all they could and necessity is laid upon them I have to give them the gospel because that's their only hope. I, I remember one particular time in which I was there and uh, this man that I was seeing for months and he was a, he was a baby boomer, grew up in the, the hippie rock and roll days and, and he was all involved in all that pop culture and rock and roll and he was even a, a, a disc jockey. Um, for a radio station. He knew all the songs, and, uh, but he didn't really have a church background. He went to uh, church a couple times when he was young, but he was still willing to talk with me. And we would talk, and I'd see him every couple of weeks, and, and there was a couple of times where I shared the gospel in the beginning, and then every once in a while I'd go see him, and, and there would be those times where I'd try to interject and say, we're, and then there would be also those times where he'd bring up his objections. And there would be those times where he had those jabs against Christianity and the Bible and, and, and those excuses and objections. And, and i just take it, but he continued to have me come, and he, he continued to let me pray for him. I remember towards the end, he was completely degenerate, um, his bed bound, couldn't use anything, and, and there was pain throughout his body. And, and I remember coming there, and... He, he couldn't even talk. And his wife and his daughter around there, and, and they're trying to comfort him as best they could. They know he's close. And he looks at me. And, and can't even talk, but I see the look in his eyes. There, there's a look that he's hoping that I would give him something, that I would bring him some sort of hope. And I tell him, Rick, this is probably the last time I will ever see you. And before I go, and it took everything within me, say, because I knew there, there's nothing, no hope for him. I prayed, Lord, I need some help on this. There's only one hope for him. I need boldness. And I said, you know, before I leave you, there's this story in the Bible. When Jesus was being crucified, there was two thieves, one on his right and one on his left. One mocked him. In fact, the other mocked him as well. But one turns to the other and says, why are you mocking him? He is innocent, but we deserve this. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I tell, told him, I said, Rick, you are the thief on the cross. You are about to die, and you are to face eternal, eternal judgment. And there's only one hope for you. You have to do what that thief did. That thief couldn't be baptized. He couldn't give any money. He couldn't do any good works. All of it had been taken from him. But the two things that he could do, he did. Number one, he repented. 
He recognized that he deserved that judgment. And he repented from his sins. And he asked for forgiveness. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In those words, he acknowledged everything that Jesus said about himself. I don't know what happened to that man. I don't know where he's at. Hopefully he's in heaven. But there are times in our lives when we will face that unbeliever right in front of us. And it may be a close family member. It may be a friend. And we know deep down. And they may not be on their deathbed. They, they may have their whole life in front of them. But they will live a wasted life unless they hear the gospel and repent and believe. Their life will be nothing. This is why Paul says in Romans 1, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And what he's saying right there is there's power in the gospel to save everyone. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Meaning there's no distinction. Though the word of God came through the Jews and through Israel and the prophets and they have this heritage. The gospel, the Messiah, is for the whole world. For anyone who would come. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. There is power in the gospel to save. But more than that, more than the power to save, there's power in the gospel to sanctify. There's power in the gospel to make you holy. In his exposition on this passage, some of you may have heard of him. Others may not. Um, Albert Martin, pastor for a long time in New Jersey. Um, he's at the end of his days, but he says this. He says, The gospel, in its unadored simplicity and in its broad comprehensiveness, meaning the whole of Scripture, is the basis of all true motivation in the Christian life. And the minute you understand the gospel, you misunderstand the gospel. You're crippled in the Christian life. Let me say that again. The gospel in its unadorned simplicity and in its broad comprehensiveness is the basis of all true motivation in the Christian life. And the minute you misunderstand the gospel, you're crippled in the Christian life. What he's saying is that we hinder or halt our growth, our sanctification by forgetting misunderstanding or not prioritizing the gospel and and that this is the main reason why the apostle paul reminds the corinthians of the gospel because in essence he's saying there's disunity jealousy and strife because you have forgotten that you have been called into one body through the gospel there's sexual immorality that's being tolerated because you forget that god has not called you for impurity but in holiness through the gospel. There's lawsuits against one another because you have forgotten that the, 
the, the gospel through which you have been forgiven and reconciled to God and are therefore to forgive and be reconciled to one another. There's a misunderstanding of liberty because you misunderstand the gospel by which, by which you have been freed from the law of sin and death and are not to subject one another to man-made laws and traditions. Nor are you to flaunt the liberties you have in Christ and cause a weaker brother to stumble. There's a misunderstanding of marriage because you misunderstand the depths of the gospel and that Christian marriage is to be a picture of Christ in his church. And there's a wrong prioritization of, of the spiritual gifts and the exercise of spiritual gifts because you don't prioritize the gospel. Finally, there's, there's a lack of love for one another because you have forgotten the love of God which is put on full display in the gospel that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, the, the, the power of the gospel lies primarily in its power to save sinners, but there is also power in the gospel to sanctify sinners and to make them holy. And that holiness is provoked primarily by the humility which the gospel provokes. Or it's produced by the humility which the gospel provokes. There's, there's humility in the gospel because none of us, not one of us, merits salvation or could we. We, we did not seek God. We did not come after God. He sought us. We hasten, we promote our sanctification, our growth in holiness by reminding ourselves daily of the gospel by dwelling upon it, by growing in our understanding of the height, the breadth, and the depth of it. Uh, Apostle Paul, you know, in his second letter to the Corinthians, he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, he says, The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. What he's saying is as we dwell upon Christ, as we dwell upon the greatness of God, as we dwell upon the gospel, we are in a sense being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We are being sanctified when we dwell upon the gospel and the greatness of God, that, that mercy, the grace, the love, the kindness, the justice, the wrath of God that is... is um, propitiated or, or satisfied on our behalf, when we dwell upon those truths, we, it provokes humility within us. It, it provokes gratefulness. It provokes love. It provokes kindness. Those things that fuel our motivation for obedience in the Christian life. So we see that the gospel has power to save. It has power to sanctify. And we have seen that there's priority in proclaiming that. And that priority is bolstered by the proofs of the gospel throughout the scriptures and throughout the transformation of our lives. And we just went through the priority, the proofs, and the power. 
but there may be some of you here that are still a little bit hazy or, or maybe you don't understand the depths of the gospel. It, there's, there's a book, and there's probably a couple other books, um, well, one in particular that I'm reminded of, of a recent book that says, What is the Gospel? And it's sad that that book had to be written, but often we need to clarify the Gospel. Greg Gilbert, what is the Gospel? And this is the Gospel, that it begins with God. As all things begin with God. All things begin with the Creator. It starts with God. And even in your gospel proclamation to others, you should begin with God. That God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of life, is holy. Or as Isaiah said, he is holy, holy, holy. No other attribute of God is, is given that, that three-part um, description. The Bible doesn't say that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or grace, 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 or wrath, 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 which all those things are true, but it does say that he is holy, holy, holy. It means he's set apart. He's perfect. He's beyond. He's incomprehensible. And, and yet he has made us in his image, and we have fallen in Adam, and because Adam sinned, we've all sinned, and sin has spread throughout all of mankind, and because God is holy, 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 because he is just, because he is perfect, he must punish every single sin. Whether that is in thought or word and deed, as Solomon said, he will bring every act into judgment. As Jesus said, he will judge you for every careless word. And even the Jews had this <clears throat> wrong idea that they could somehow work their way, do enough good deeds, and even though the Old Testament scriptures don't exactly say that. They perverted the scriptures to create a, a, a system of self-righteous works. Jesus explains the law in Matthew chapter 5 more clearly to them when he says, you have heard it said that thou shalt not murder, but I say to you, whoever has hate, hatred in his heart for his brother has murdered him in his heart. You have heard it say, thou shall not commit adultery. <clears throat> but I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery with her in his heart. And even in the Old Testament, it says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so our true condition is what happens in our heart, and our mind. And as Paul says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. None are righteous. No one, not one. None seeks after God. And so there's this dilemma for, for us, and not so much for God, but it seems like a dilemma because in Exodus 34, it says, uh, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God himself proclaims his mercy, his love, his faithfulness, 
his forgiveness. But at the same time, he also forgives, he also proclaims the fact that he is just and holy and will not, um, he will punish every sin. He will not clear the guilty. So that puts mankind who is sinful in a dilemma. How can we be forgiven? How can God display his love toward us? And the answer is Jesus Christ, who came to this world to live a life that none of us could live, obeying the law perfectly in thought, word, and deed, so that he could go to the cross and be that perfect sacrifice for us and for our sins. Every one of us here will be resurrected, either unto eternal life or unto eternal death. And so for any of you here who have yet to be born again, God's call is to, to you is to repent from your sins, to repent from trusting in your good works or any sort of human goodness, and to believe the gospel while you still have time. The Bible says to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near, to let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon in and through Jesus Christ. And for all of us who have believed the gospel and are trusting solely in the finished work of Christ, God's call to you is to prioritize the gospel and to build your life upon the gospel, to stop living for ourselves and to live for him and to keep the main thing the main thing. Because in doing that, then all the lesser things will fall in line. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. Lord, you know us. You know us deeply. Nothing is hidden from your sight. Our thoughts, our words, our attitudes, our past, present, and future is all naked and laid bare to you. You know us. And we are fickle. We are sinful. We struggle. We stumble. We falter. We fail. But Lord, if we get anything right, help us to get your gospel right. Help us to remember those two great truths that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. And help us to live lives worthy of his name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.